Good morning, sanctuary. Christ is risen. Pastor Mark and Danielle send their loves and their greetings. They are in Beacon, New York, back at Salem Tabernacle, ministering to those folks today and visiting some family. So again, they wish they could be here. They're also off doing the work of the Lord today. But I want to start today by reminding us where we are in the Christian year. Today is called Proper 24. It's the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost Sunday in this season of ordinary time. So we are coming to the end of the liturgical year. And one of the invitations of ordinary time is to bring us back time and time again to the life of Christ, his lived experiences and the wisdom of the gospel, which for us is a sort of upside down kind of wisdom. It turns power structures on their head. So woven in and out of ordinary time is what Joan Chittister, a Benedictine sister, refers to as the routine holiness as usual, which is the ultimate measure of the quality of a soul. Routine holiness as usual is looking at the life of Christ and the rhythms of our day in, day out living and realizing that these sacred holy moments are oftentimes found in the most ordinary, the most mundane sorts of times, more than they are in the big and extravagant moments. It means that the way we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And for Christians, most of our days are spent in ordinary time, which is the season that we find ourselves in today. Am I in the dark? Hmm. That's true in more ways than one, let me tell you. <laughs> wow. I can't see you anymore, which is great news for me. <laughs> Man, the lectionary text today, one of the offerings that we get from the lectionary is this uh, passage in the book of Job, where God begins to question his servant Job, and he says to him, gird up your loins like a man, which is the last thing any of us want to hear from God. But also think about how interesting this is, that here is a story of this man Job, and this story, of course, was passed down um, by word of mouth, probably for generations, before someone somewhere thought, I need to write that down. Because how often does God speak to people and tell them, all right, gird up your loins like a man. Something's coming your way. But we're not going to spend any time in Job today. I just wanted to be able to slip in, gird your loins like a man, somewhere in here. Uh, but I do want to take us for a moment to another one of the lectionary texts today it's from Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. Everyone say amen if you find yourselves ignorant or wayward. 
And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And here's where I want to spend the majority of our time today. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, we do give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the gifts of one another. God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit. God, that as we gather, we come to worship you, the one who makes our worship and praise possible. So God, would you open us up? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you have for us today? Through Christ our Lord, and everyone said, amen. This is the phrase that was so striking to me this week as I reviewed the texts, that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn things. And not just in the sense that, like, yes, he was fully human, and so he had to learn how to walk and talk and eat and all these kinds of things, but that he had to learn the spiritual work of obedience. And the way that he learned obedience is even harder for me to understand, and the text tells us that he learned obedience through suffering, through what he suffered. The text says that this learned obedience through suffering, it made way for Christ's perfection. And there are two ways that we can look at this idea of perfection. One is this way that only Christ was ever called to fulfill. It was this way of perfection in that Christ was sinless and he was perfect. It's this thing that allowed him to carry our sins to the cross. And none of us here today are called to that kind of perfection. But there's another kind of perfection that I believe we are called to. And it's this way of thinking about perfection, not as sinlessness, but about wholeness and completion. That we're prepared to fulfill the purposes that God has for us. And all of us today are called to that kind of perfection. Because God does want to complete us. God does want to make us whole for the intended purposes that he desires for us all along. The downside to this is that suffering is the only doorway to be made whole. Suffering is the only doorway to go through to make us complete. Jesus, the Son of God, had to suffer so that he could learn obedience. And if this is true for Jesus, 
If this is true for the Son of God, why would we suspect it's any different for us? See, I think we would love to think that because Jesus suffered and put it all on the cross, that that means we don't have to. But the reality is that Jesus still looks at us and he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And we're not following him to McDonald's. We're not following him, unfortunately, to the gathering place. Who's been? It's so good. That's not where Jesus wants to lead us. But, I mean, go and spend time. But it's precisely because Jesus suffered, because he went to the cross, that it's inevitable we will have to do the same. This is the cruciform life that we are called to. So I think the cross of Jesus is for us. And it's for us in more ways than one. It is true that it is for us in the sense that Christ died for us and for our sin. But it is also for us in that we are now invited to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus. Richard Rohr calls this Christian life the way of the wound, the way of suffering, the way of brokenness. And to follow Jesus is, of course, the way of the cross. It is the way of brokenness. Let's go back for a minute to the gospel text. So here we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, as they're referred to. And they come forward and they do say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We rubbed the golden lamp and now you owe us three wishes. And how often do we do this in our own lives? That we come to Jesus and we say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to one of us sit at your right hand and one of us to sit at your left hand because we want to make our mama proud. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink this cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they reply, stupidly, we are. <laughs> they have no idea what it is that they're asking Jesus. So James and John, here in the presence of Jesus, they're asking questions that they don't understand, and they're giving answers that they can never live up to. And this is so much like our own lives, that we ask Jesus for things that we have no idea what we're asking him. And when he responds, we give an answer that there's no possible way we can live up to. How many of you have ever made a bargain with God? The bartering system, if you just do this, I'll never do this. If you just do this, I will do this every day. And here we are, saying yes to Jesus. So they come asking Jesus if they can sit one at his left and one at his right. And at a time of Roman occupation, what they thought they were saying yes to is when you overthrow this Roman occupation and you take your seat on the throne, can we sit there in these places of power at your right hand and at your left hand? 
And Jesus tells them right out of the gate, you do not know what you are asking. And then he responds with this question. Can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup? And they tell him, we are able. And on the other side of history, we see just how wrong they were. But inevitably, they would drink the cup. But the cup was not what they thought it was. It was not a cup of power or control. It was a cup of suffering. And again, this is so much like our own lives. And it's not even so much that James and John asked for something inappropriate. After all, they wanted to be close to Jesus. Their instinct is right. Their impulse is right. There's something about this person that I want to be close to. But it's what it meant to be close to Jesus where they get it wrong. But it's this question, and this question that I want to focus on today. Can you drink the cup? I think it's a question that we all face. It's a question that we face personally as individuals. I think it's a question that we face corporately as a community of faith. Can you drink the cup? And to drink the cup faithfully is to, like the Hebrew writer says, learn obedience through what we suffer. This is the cup that we are offered today. It is the cup of sorrow, and it is the cup of joy. But we don't do well with suffering. I think this is true as a culture. I mean, we even have language to avoid suffering. So we don't have a cemetery or a graveyard anymore. We have memorial gardens. We don't have operations or surgeries. We have a medical procedure. We don't die, we pass on. We go to be with the Lord. We don't have funerals, we have a celebration of life. We don't call it a body, we call it remains. There's no such thing as a grave anymore. It's a final resting place. And I know that there's a purpose and there's a function for all of these euphemisms. They soften the blow of the sourest lemons that life has to offer. But I think in watering down the suffering and the pain, it also limits our ability to fully experience and to live into the joy of life. It's by fully drinking down these moments that we're able to find joy and true joy at the bottom of the cup. And the problem is we are also living in a time when entertainment is so widely and readily, immediately available to all of us. And this word, entertainment, it literally means to keep someone in between. It's everything that gets and keeps our mind away from the things that are hard to face. And so the question for us now becomes, what do we do, both individually and collectively, with this issue of suffering? Can we learn to accept the cup of suffering as the way of salvation? Henry uh, Nouwen, if you're familiar with him, he wrote this wonderful little book uh, called Can You Drink the Cup? Uh, he took some of my sermon notes here and put together this little book called Can You Drink the Cup? Um, if you've never read it, please go grab it. It's like 120 pages. You can read it in an afternoon. And uh, I'm leaning pretty heavily on that word today as I feel quite in over my head, as I often do. 
So for those of you who don't know, Henry Nouwen was this brilliant uh, scholar, theologian, priest, and he taught at Harvard, at Notre Dame, in Yale, up until the time that he left all of that to go and participate in the L'Arche community of Dayspring. And in these communities, they are able-bodied people who live alongside people with severe disabilities. And he talks about this experience of diving into this world of suffering with these people as a way of exposing and then also healing his own wounds and his own suffering. And he lives basically for the rest of his life with this individual named Adam. And Adam is, again, severely disabled. He can't speak. He can't walk by himself. And so most of Henry Nouwen's life becomes caring for this person who has no ability to care for himself. And these people do not care that he is a scholar. They do not care that he's taught at Yale and Harvard and Notre Dame. They care if he can help them stand up out of a chair. And it's by joining in them with their own suffering that became the formative experience of his life in ministry. And while living there, he wrote this book, Can You Drink the Cup, that addresses this, this issue of suffering. And he offers us three postures as a way of understanding this life, this cruciform life that we're called to participate in. The three postures being holding the cup, lifting the cup, and then drinking the cup all the way down. So that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Because if we are going to be a people that can honestly and faithfully say yes to the question, the first thing we have to do is learn how do we hold this cup of suffering, this cup of our lives. Again, what James and John thought they were saying yes to was some sort of military conquest. It was a position of power for them which is to say that they had not taken the time to properly analyze and consider the cup that they were holding. When Jesus asked them this question, can you drink the cup, they don't even know what's right in front of them. What they thought they were saying yes to was power, but power is often an easy substitute for love. Now one would say that it seems easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control people rather than to love people. It's easier to own life than to love life. Do you remember this story in John's gospel? It's post-resurrection, and Jesus is on the shore, and he calls out to Peter, and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? He asks him three times. Most of us would like to believe that we would say yes. But I think most of the time we don't say yes. We ask a question, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Do you love me? Well, what are you going to give me? Do you love me? Well, what's the benefit for me? Do you love me? How does this help me get ahead? But that's not the question Jesus is asking. And this is, of course, the long, painful history of the church. People, time and time again, being tempted to choose power over love, to choose control over the cross, and to choose being a leader over being led. We see this all the time. 
where most of our church services now are designed around the idea that you are a leader. You need to be trained to be a leader. But what we see in John's gospel is Jesus says to Peter, if you love me, then in all truth, I tell you when you were young, you put on your own belt and you walked where you liked. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. To honestly say yes to Jesus is to be led to places we would rather not go. This is the cup of suffering, the cup of sorrow that we are offered. So in holding the cup, we're invited into this moment to take a good, long, hard look at our lives. To consider all of the good, all of the joy, all of the grief, all the sorrow that we've experienced and will experience. The challenge here is that so often we're tempted to look at the cup that we are offered and try to only see the joy, or we choose to only see the suffering as if it's the singular thread in the fabric of our lives. And the reality is that life is infinitely more complex. It's more than just the joys, and it's more than just the suffering. Proverbs 14 tells us that even in laughter, the heart may ache. And rejoicing may end in grief. Our hearts, our lives, the cups that we're offered, they are full of all sorts of emotions. Joy, heartbreak, anger, laughter, grief, sorrow, contentment. Are you happy or are you sad? Are you joyful or are you downtrodden? If you are a human being in the room, the answer is usually yes. Our hearts have all kinds of emotions and feelings swimming around, and often at the same time. And sometimes you are two opposite things at the very same time. Carefully considering the cup that we're holding, it causes us to realize that lots and lots of opposites can exist simultaneously. It acknowledges that we don't need to fix everything. It realizes that a contradiction and paradox are all parts of life. Even laughter has an ache. Rejoicing can end in grief. One of the things that we do with our daughter, Nora, she's five, uh, is every night before bedtime, we say, what was the best part of your day and what was the hardest part of your day? And what we hope is happening is that it's causing her to actually reflect and think back about the way she spent her time and the things that made her happy or made her laugh, or the things that she didn't like about the day. So a few things happen in that moment. It means that we have to reflect about who we were with, the choices that we make. It makes us aware of the full spectrum of our days, the good and the bad, and we experienced it all, and we survived. And then also, It makes us realize that no matter what happened, we were rarely alone in our experiences. We made it to the end of the day, and we did it together. I think this is something of the life that Jesus imagines for us, a life 
that can look honestly at the cup that we've been given, unafraid to share that cup with others, good and bad, joys and sorrows, grief and celebration. And that it's in Jesus that we see the one who has fully participated in our suffering is the one who wants us to fully participate in his joy. That our cup is a mixture of all of these things, and to ignore them is to miss something of the life that Jesus calls us to. My daughter Nora, our daughter Nora, she had a surgery this week. Um, she had this umbilical hernia that she's had for a few years, and we just knew at some point it would have to get taken care of. And this was the week. And it was an easy procedure, but it put Nora in this position the last few days where she's unable to do things by herself. And in these moments, Nora and I have always been really close. She's been a daddy's girl from the beginning, which I love. But there's something about her not being able to do the things she's always been able to do and having to look at me and say, I need your help. Can you help me stand up off the couch? Can you maybe carry me to the bathroom? Because we both know that she needed this to happen in order for her to experience health and wholeness and fullness. That next week, she's gonna be able to play and run and jump around and it's actually going to be better than last week when she could do all that, but it might hurt her. There's something about this door of suffering that opens us up to a world that is better than the world we're currently experiencing, but it is a doorway of suffering and pain. But lifting the cup is something like, can you carry me to the bathroom? Can you pick me up off the couch? So once we come to this moment where we fully understand and fully appreciate what it is that is in our cup, that life is a mixture of joy and suffering, we lift that cup in community with other people so that that cup can become a source of healing to others. To this, Henry Nouwen says that life is full of gains and losses, joys and sorrows, ups and downs, but we do not have to live it alone. We do not have to live it alone. We want to drink our cup together and thus celebrate the truth that the wounds of our individual lives, which seem intolerable when lived alone, become sources of healing when we live them as part of our mutual care. When we're able to hold the cup faithfully, we're invited to lift the cup. In this act of lifting the cup, it happens every time that we speak or act in ways that make our lives lives for other people. It happens when we stop wondering whether our life is better or worse than other people. It happens when we're willing to let others know us and be known by us. This is the only way we're able to celebrate with others and be celebrated by others. Think about every time you've ever raised a glass with friends or family around a table. It's usually in a moment where you are known by those people who are present and who are known by you. And you're stopping for a minute because something is happening in that moment that you're celebrating and you want to name it. 
You want to put a marker on that experience. It's a moment worth pausing for. And some of the most sacred moments in our lives happen this way. Think about this moment at this table, at the altar. Every week we lift the cup. And the words are said, drink this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Think about what we're saying in that moment. It is a cup of joy because it is the blood of the new covenant. The cup that signifies that we share in this life with Christ. But it's also a cup of sorrow. Because in order for that cup to be filled, Jesus' blood had to be shed. But we lift it up, joy and sorrow mixed together. And in doing so, it brings healing to the world. This is what it is to lift the cup of our lives, to honestly name our suffering, call it what it is, and then offer those things as a healing balm to our neighbor. I participated in this gathering one time, and the person that was speaking had everybody pull out a piece of paper and pull out a pen, and with your non-dominant hand, write the words, I know how you feel. And then over the course of the next few minutes, we took that piece of paper and we folded it up, crinkled it so that yours doesn't look anything, uh, any different than the people around you, and to pass it around a few times. And then to open it back up and read those words again on this messy, crinkled up piece of paper with terrible handwriting, I know how you feel. There's something about joining together in our experiences and bearing our wounds to one another that actually brings healing. I think this was the experience that so many people had in coming to sanctuary and finding this community, is that they were coming in with some kind of wound from another kind of leader or another kind of church community, and they said, I just have to show up somewhere. Where can I go? And we found each other in this room. And part of what we have to do if we're going to lift this cup together is to be able and be willing to honestly name the suffering and the pain and the brokenness that we've experienced and call it what it is in order that it might bring healing to one another. I do want to say here that I don't think we're called to bleed all over one another. I don't think that's the point of this. But we are called to bind one another's wounds. And you cannot bind a wound if you cannot be willing to expose the wound in safe spaces. It's through these afflictions, these broken parts of us, where the light of Christ in our lives is able to escape onto other people. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians when he says that we have this treasure in clay jars, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Finally, once we've held the cup, honestly reflected on our lives, the joys and the sorrows, and we offer all of it, the good and the painful, to one another, we're finally invited to drink the cup. And to drink it all the way to the bottom. On drinking the cup, 
Henry Nouwen says, as we gradually come to befriend our own reality, to look with compassion at our own sorrows and joys, and as we are able to discover the unique potential of our way of being in the world, we can move beyond our protest, put the cup of life to our lips, and drink it slowly, carefully, but fully. When we get to this place, we can trust that by drinking the cup, we will find true freedom. The hope in all of this is that at the bottom of the cup, emptied of both sorrow and joy, we come to find that the cup we are drinking is, in fact, the cup of salvation. And this requires trust. Remember, Jesus' response to James and John is as radical as his question. Can you drink the cup? He tells them, as for the seats at my right and at my left, it's not for me to decide. It's for those for whom they've been prepared. So living a life in which we hold the cup and we lift the cup in community with others and then drink it all the way down, it's not a heroic act. There's no guarantee of a nice reward at the bottom. It is an act of selfless love, an act of immense trust, an act of surrender to a God who will give what we need when we need it. God makes all things new, not all new things. He's not interested in replacing your experiences. He is interested in redeeming your experiences for the sake of others. He's interested instead of redeeming our pain and our joy and the good and the bad and sorrow and grief, all for his glory. So drinking the cup, it means emptying ourselves hoping that God will eventually fill us with the life of Christ. Drinking, drinking the cup as Jesus did, it is the way out of this trap of sin and death. It is the way to salvation. It is a hard, painful way, a way that we want to avoid at all costs. Trust me, I wish there was another way. I wish there was a loophole. But even Jesus asked if this cup could pass him by. And in the moment when he's in the garden praying that this cup could pass him by, where are James and John, the disciples that said, yes, they too could drink this cup? They were asleep. To be sure, it is the only way. And the hope is this that God is renewing all things, that he is setting all things to rights. The hope is that by bearing our wounds to one another, that others may be healed, just as we are healed by the wounds of Christ. This is the call of Christian community, to hold the cup, to lift it, and to drink it all the way down. Can you drink the cup?
I hope for our sake and the sake of one another, we can say yes with God's help. Amen.